Welcome to episode 7 of Coffee and Circuses. This week I'm joined by Jay Ingate, or should that be THE Jay Ingate, as he's supposedly the only one in existence. If anybody out there does know of another Jay Ingate, please contact the show, although perhaps one is enough. Jay is an alumni of the University of Kent, where he studied from his undergraduate through to his PhD, and he now lectures in archaeology at Canterbury Christchurch University. Jay's main area of research is water in the Roman world, so you're going to hear him in full flow, fluidly discussing his upcoming book, which is bound to make a big splash, as it asks us to rethink what water meant in the past, and how that could change how we approach water supply in the future. So it's research that will certainly make some waves. He also talks about how he got into archaeology, you could say back when he was wet behind the ears, and how the currents of time have led him to where he is now. There's also a flood of nerdy references in here, as we talk about the ancient world on film, whether we're the archaeological equivalent of Star Trek The Next Generation, and how Jay recognised Matthew McConaughey's acting talents earlier than anybody else when he saw the film Rain of Fire. Didn't even have to try for that one. Also as well, don't forget you can subscribe to the podcast via iTunes and Spotify, but not via Tidal. Wouldn't think it, but I write my own stuff. But thanks for joining me, and on with the show. it's so good it's so good it's even got like a little card game within the game that is very good <laughs> uh, and so yeah that, it's those details that matter it's those details that matter it's like Final Fantasy you used to have like things like that did you ever play Final Fantasy yeah, yeah. So I was Fantasy massively like into that. I never really played 7 which was the one that was really yeah. big for a lot of people for me number 8 yeah I really yeah. loved yeah well that had a card game that was probably one of the first games that had that almost cinematic feel yeah. to it and that I was really to some extent perhaps emotionally involved in as mm. well across four discs yeah. when you get to the end of that fourth disc you're like oh, this, this has been a journey this although is... to be fair the fourth disc like in that ending it all started getting a bit weird didn't it like there's a sort of time displacement yeah or something. I can't sort of remember what happened five now. sorcerers or something they had to like beat and yeah. went up in space I started doing number nine and then I just I stopped I hit a point in that where it was too difficult and I just never went mm. back to it and then I replayed since but. Yeah, but nine had like a good vibe because it had some sort of medieval fantasy type vibe it was uh, yeah I just had quite, had quite a good soundtrack just remember it I think all it of them had quite a good soundtrack yeah. yeah you could probably watch them now as well yeah them in the background yeah it's, well I'll get I'll get transported to the magical world of youth I can't, I can't, I can't concentrate Not, nostalgia and I'd be there again single tear running down your face <laughs> thinking of better times <laughs> thinking of simpler times just you know trying to piece together the walkthrough of like Final Fantasy 9 <laughs> getting stuck oh where do I I need to level up my character a bit more and that was like the greatest concern oh I've got to do the homework but level up <laughs> so water water's the main thing in your area of research, how did you how did you come to water? Did you, did you the tap? It, no. it, oh, well, I, damn it, man! I was gonna, I was literally on the verge of saying something about did you go with the flow, but oh, you've God. you've already already beat me to it on the pun. But, so the book's on the way. The book's on the way. Yeah, book's on the way. It's in it's in the hands of of the publishers. So um, talk to me about the book. What's the, the book is uh, based on the PhD. So it's well, it's 
rewritten and stuff because a PhD is not a book. And it's taken a little while. Well, where do you start with it? I mean, it's about it's about Roman Britain and water supply in Roman British towns. So I suppose it builds on what you were saying because I think the archetypal structures of Roman towns in like Roman Britain have been interpreted in, in those sort of imperialist ways or colonial ways. And a lot of Roman archaeology, I suppose, through things like track, has moved away from that and talking about discrepant identities and stuff. But the big archetypes, things like bathhouses and aqueducts, still really are interpreted in the same way because they've got such a legacy of being connected to sort of civilising and different to what was happening before in these places. So... Yeah, if someone finds a Roman aqueduct now, they're still going to talk about how oh, Rome's bringing this sophisticated sort of uh, system there, not really related to anything that was going on in that context beforehand. So the book really is trying to sort of defamiliarise those archetypes of water supply that we sort of rely on for that presentation of the Roman town, that connection to the modern world, and trying to sort of connect it more to the local context. So... You know, within prehistory, lots of work's been written about the meaning-laden nature of water. It's not simply practical, it has symbolic, it has ritual currency. Variable, depending on where you are, but it, it has those sort of meanings. But it seems that when you get to the Roman period, you tend to just forget that and just say, well, the reason we're using this water in this town here is just because people need to drink or people need to bathe in it or something like this. So it's trying to connect it, I suppose, to that legacy in the landscape, which is a bit strange to us because we're so used to actually connecting it to our own modern towns and our own modern way of living. It's trying to sort of sever those things and hopefully in the process, the ambition is maybe highlighting for us how we can't rely on when we're looking at our sort of modern towns and where they're going with things like water and the natural world and things like this, we can't rely on this historic precedent that's built up for thousands of years that we're justified in doing what we're doing. So we're justified in having this relationship with water, which is very exploitative and dominating in the modern, in the modern towns because we've had 2,000 years of history of doing it and it's always been that way and... Um, um, therefore, we should carry on, status quo, sort of carrying on into the future. So if you break down those things from the past that people are sort of relying on to present their own towns, then maybe you can become more able, I suppose, to digest the idea that future relationships to things like water can be different and probably inevitably will be different in the future. So when you're dealing with things like climate change and the relationship between modern towns and modern cities and their water supplies, things have to radically change if the world is really going to keep up the prosperity it's got at the moment. So I think just any way that we can try and engage with that and highlight that to people is probably useful. So, you know, to an extent, it's a strange thing, but I think it makes, too often, sometimes like with Roman archaeology, you'll just get the idea that the only significant thing for us is presenting it as familiar. So, oh yeah, you know, the Romans are great because they're just the same as us. So they got they got their water from uh, an aqueduct, just like our ones that we've got running under our towns. But actually, some of that unfamiliar aspect to it, possibly that's more relevant these days because we have to think in very different ways if we're going to get where we need to get in the future. I love the term religious currency. <laughs> Is that something you read somewhere, or you came up with yourself? 
don't know. I don't know. I can't even I remember just term, saying it then. <laughs> I used the term economic gravity the other day economic in a gravity. seminar, which I came up with on the spot, and I love it so much that now I just keep using it in conversation. <laughs> I talked about the economic gravity of Hadrian's Wall. Oh, it, yeah. it, so what what did what did water mean in the Roman world? What did it mean beyond simply just being sustenance for people to stay alive? I mean, it was easy to say it's got this important religious aspect yeah. to it or ritual aspect to it. Yeah, I think the underrated thing is that even within the Mediterranean sort of centre of the Roman world, it isn't simply a practical substance. It's highly symbolic and it's highly religious. How do people depict or write about? water in the Roman world, well, they write about it like gods, personified deities, um, like the Danube or something, that's how it's presented. And they have their own wills, they have their own agency, essentially. And sure, you get currency by trying to control that, and a lot is made out of how, sort of in the Roman world, people are doing this and they're sort of dominating water sources and, I don't know, perhaps marginalising, like we would think about today. But actually, when you sort of dig into that relationship, it's more they're getting power out of the fact that the water is seen as so powerful anyway. So somehow controlling it for a limited amount of time or guiding it in some way, you can get a lot of currency from that. So, yeah, the Roman world is very variable, I suppose, Um, just generalising in terms of the meaning for a central Roman region, I suppose. But if we can break down the idea that the most central of Roman identities see it in a very complex way. Then when you move out to the provinces, you've got to consider even more complexity, haven't you? So, yeah, so I think in the Roman world, it's one of these things, of course, it's used for practical things. That's just a necessity of human life, isn't it? You know, we have to drink water and stuff like this. But it also has this other layer of complexity that entangles human behaviours. And so it's not, it's not simply... You can't just simply say that in the Roman period there are dominating water sources because at the end of the day, the amount of upkeep you have to do to control these systems and keep them working means that you've actually got a really deep entanglement between the water and its agency, what it's trying to do, and human behaviour. And the more you bring it into the town, the more that becomes sort of problematic and likely to break down. So actually, the less dominating and the less controlled you are, and you see that as you move through the Roman period, things do break down because the systems can't be kept up um, in the same way. So I think there's probably just a, um, a lot of complexity one way or another. And then when you move into a province, you'll see different ways people are treating water in those sort of contexts. So you know, somewhere in Canterbury, perhaps slightly different to St Albans or you know another place within within Britain we can sort of just try and see what they're doing in terms of landscape or prehistoric prehistoric sort of buildings and how they're associated into those places so I suppose when I've been studying it's almost spatial a lot of things you know, where is this bathhouse located is it close to something have we got votive deposits that are nearby and things like this or overlapping landscape features so in Dorchester the Roman aqueduct is built into the earthwork system of the Poundbury Hill Fort, so prehistoric settlement, it sort of becomes part of the earthworks there. And okay, yeah, you can say, well, it's just advantageous sort of situation getting into Dorchester. But at the same time, how are people viewing those earthworks and the old sort of hill fort there? There's a legacy of memory. People obviously rationalise what's ever still in the landscape. And then the aqueduct becoming part of that is potentially profound, especially because 
Dorchester seems to have quite a close relationship to the river, the River Frome, which probably we haven't given enough credit to. We tend to see that in a sort of economic way. So yeah, it's sort of, I wouldn't say that you know, you've got definitive answers of these things, but it's just posing the questions that we should be thinking about more options about how people are relating to those environments and the natural world, I suppose. Um, especially when they've just got, they're coming from a background, whether it's Northern European, temperate European beliefs or more Mediterranean centred beliefs, where nature is deified and has its own will and purpose. It's, you know, it's not simply something that, um, you just, it's hard to marginalise it because it's divine. So uh, I guess that's a really rambling answer to your question, isn't it? But yeah, some, somewhere in there is some sense, hopefully. Well, it's interesting because what you're saying about becoming deified, I was actually doing a seminar recently on the life of Titus by Suetonius mm. and also talking a bit about Josephus as well. And there was an article for that which raised an interesting discussion about when Josephus describes Titus when he approaches Jerusalem, mm. the springs and the wells outside of Jerusalem overflow mm. and it's supposed to be seen as an indication of divine favour, mm. but it's an indication of divine favour that can be read in both Roman and Jewish terms yeah. because the Romans associate storms and water with mm. the likes of Jupiter yeah. and at the same time in the Jewish tradition obviously you have things like Moses striking the rock and water coming out. So it's very interesting how that that image could be read by both a Jewish and a Roman audience and they could yeah. still un both understand what is meant by that. And also the other day I I'm going back over the lectures for Roman art and architecture next term and I have a slide of the Gemma Augusta and it's got next to Augustus who's being crowned. One of the figures is possibly Neptune yeah. alongside Tellus so it's the earth and the water. Mm. But it is interesting how over and over again that that image of divine favour or a divine connection born through water comes out in literature and iconography. Because I guess as well like even like Trajan with his massive bridge sounds like a euphemism there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> is is him conquering the it was, it was the Danube right yeah yeah, Danube, yeah yeah so that that in itself is very symbolic that he mm. does that it's very interesting actually in how water is actually used control over water is used to demonstrate power particularly power of a of, mm. of a leading figure yeah and actually there's stuff with I think Pliny writes a little bit about how sort of Trajan's when he when he conquers sort of Dacia and overcomes the Danube, Danube is sort of convinced he's almost he's almost brought onto the Roman side. I think actually I don't know if it's Trajan with the coins, but I think there's some coins that were minted where Danube is actually like got his hand on the personification of Dacia's throne and sort of like throttling Dacia. So it's actually been recruited into the Roman army. So despite the fact that it's the native river of those lands. So it's not that we've oh we've defeated Daniel, we've just convinced him and his power is now on our side. So you're not marginalising the power there, you're just saying that Rome is justified because Daniel has sided with you. So yeah, and then Pliny talks a bit about how Trajan, when he conquers these areas, um, is controlling those powerful rivers like the Danube. But if an emperor comes along and they're not powerful enough, then those rivers will then abandon the Roman world and they're sort of like they're fickle. And then if you haven't got control and you're not a good enough emperor, Trajan's a great emperor, um, but if you're not, then they will sort of abandon the cause. So they have their own whims, you know, and, um, and their own sort of power. 
But it, it's like you say as well, talking about that example um, with Titus, or was it Titus? Yeah. yeah. Um, that you've got that sort of view on both sides. Because water is that, that thing that sort of carries over. It's obviously got traditions you know, all over the world. And the different cultures you're talking about in the empire are always going to have some sort of legacy belief. But when you get to a sort of settlement, you can't even think just about one perspective. So, yeah, you can say that oh, the Roman army or something, Lincoln might be influential in building a Roman aqueduct. They might be doing it to put a symbolic sense of power over that region or something. But there's a long legacy of interaction in that landscape, and the people that were local there are going to see that in another way. They're not necessarily going to see it as an affront because they've been interacting with it for uh, many years in different ways, increasingly intensifying that relationship. But they're probably going to see it from a different perspective. Maybe that's going to be positive. It doesn't necessarily have to be uh, negative. And so it can possibly create legitimacy from a few different angles. And, and maybe that's a skilled sort of nuanced part of local governance as well when you, when you think about those issues. So, yeah, it's just it opens up a lot of different multifaceted and multi-layered aspects to urbanisation or something. I suppose that's key to where we're going with the subject, isn't it? Moving beyond sort of going very postmodern, <laughs> no definitive truth, you know, of these things and, and variability on a local level. So, yeah, it's, it's just an interesting subject, you know. But. It's interesting what you say as well about the Danube or the personification of the Danube switching over to the Roman side. Because mm. just to go back to that Josephus mm. uh, excerpt again, the idea that when Titus approaches Jerusalem and all the wells kind of mm. and springs overflow, he, I believe anyway, erroneously is saying that that's also what happened when Nebuchadnezzar approaches Jerusalem mm. and the Jews are exiled to Babylon. So what he's <clears throat> getting at is that the Jewish god Yahweh has switched sides from the Jews mm. to the Romans and is on the, the Roman side as almost a divine retribution because in the same way that when the Jews are exiled to Babylon and also when they're in Egypt that uh, they haven't been honouring God in the right way so now he switched sides to their enemies mm. to basically tell them off Yeah, and so that's very similar idea mm. I actually just sat here now just like it's probably a really good research break in there first one I was to get to our laptop and start writing it or somebody else would listen to this and be like stolen mm. Another question, this is just an interesting question in terms of, it's probably a very basic question that there's an obvious answer to it, and I just don't know it. Who built the aqueducts in towns in Rome and Britain? Do we actually know? I mean, because obviously buildings, public buildings in Roman towns, well, we don't really know in Rome and Britain, mm. but they probably are a result, like elsewhere in the Roman world of ergotism, of people trying to benefit their community by constructing these overly large, probably unnecessary buildings. Mm. Are aqueducts a result of a similar sort of process or do you think that that's actually more the town altogether coming together and, and saying that we need this or is it a manifestation of empire or is it simply an adaption of things that are coming in? Yeah, I think it's really hard to say in Rome, Britain. Now you get, you get a few examples where you're getting military phase sort of aqueducts because a lot of British towns have got some sort of early military phase and maybe they'll establish something, but then they'll probably move on, and those things are the upkeep of those aqueducts, or maybe sometimes they're diverted and changed courses after that, or another aqueduct is built, and I think it's part of that process of, all we can say, because we haven't got lots of evidence, I don't think, is that, yeah, it's somehow been funded locally by local people of importance. The thing is that some of the stuff that we've been trying to connect is that 
sometimes these aqueducts, I think like at St Albans and stuff, you've got some potential interactions with, I don't know, spaces of influence and power beforehand that it would make sense that you're possibly getting local rulers or something engaging, using a new tool by which to communicate importance in that area, but sort of, you know, a new sort of style, I suppose, using the aqueducts. Um, so, yeah, I don't think it's definitive answers. So maybe someone out there is going to go, yeah, there are definitive answers. But um, <laughs> maybe there are in some places and some places in not. But, um, yeah, I think it's one of those things that it's just something we need to explore. Too, too often, I think we've just thought this is just a purely sort of Roman thing that's been introduced. Um, and we've not really thought about why people... And the only way we've thought about why people want them on a sort of local level is because, oh, there's something... Why wouldn't you? So, yeah, I think it's probably something that... It's one of those hard ones because we don't have loads of sort of inscription sort of evidence, do we? Of these no, things like, uh, that's what I was wondering. Yeah, I think because it's it is one of those things that stereotypically mm. links straight away in people's minds to the Romans. Mm. But that's the question, I guess, in the academic world that we have to go beyond. Yeah. Just simply saying it's the Romans who built it. It's yeah. like, well, what does that mean? Who yeah. who do, who do you mean by the Romans? Uh, yeah. Well, you know, the other thing in Britain is that you're not you're not got the um, the huge aqueducts that you'd see, like the Pont de Gaulle or something, Nîmes or Cologne's aqueduct, the sort of huge things that we'd maybe associate more with the real organisation of the military and stuff. They're much more small-scale sort of leet systems, so they're just like ditches with some lining sometimes, and that's very much achievable for, uh, you know, even in the Iron Age. So you, you parallel it to the sort of earthwork systems that some of these settlements in Roman Britain have got around them. And it just seems like a sort of a new phase in some ways of, of those practices. And, you know, there, there are probably more connections there with those sort of systems as well. So, yeah, I think it's one of those things that maybe we'll learn. Well, maybe, you know, we're never going to get the sort of evidence to do much. But I think we have to explore those issues of, issues of engagement from the different perspectives and why people really want them and how is that new feature interacting with what has gone before. Is that interesting from any perspective? Does it show a rejection of practices? Does it show um, continuity? Does it show some sort of hybrid practice um, that is combining lots of different influences? So it's yeah, it's, it's not an easy question to answer. Really, but... Do you look at things like Cologne's aqueduct and get jealous? <laughs> well, the sort of point of it is to be sort of bigging up the British ones <laughs> <laughs> because they're well in the traditional dialogue. Of course, when you just think about um, aqueducts being this sort of Roman thing about technology and civilization. The bigger, the better. So, ergo, when people have looked at British actors, they've just said, "Well, you know, they're the work of a incompetent engineer or something." <laughs> or uh, I think that might have been in like a in one of like excavation reports or something, sort of old one. That yeah, it was clearly the work of an incompetent provincial engineer, just because they're so small scale. So you either think, "Oh, well, Britain's really poor," or Britain is, um, you know, just backward and they can't build this or whatever. But if you start looking at the sort of landscape, then maybe those sort of aqueducts have more connections to what's going on in the past there. And maybe they're more effective for those reasons. So, yeah, of course, as well, the landscape is different in Britain. So you've got some of that element. But we can't rule out the fact that, yeah, if something looks quite similar and it's engaging with something that's meaningful in the landscape, then then possibly that form is better suited to interacting with that. So yeah, but I mean, yeah, of course you get jealous of the 
It's like, I'll just go to, you know. It's like, I do. I go somewhere and they've got a really nice Mithraeum. Well, I'm like, well, I mean, I suppose the London Mithraeum now. But, like, you know, I, I get jealous of different periods of, like, history. So, sort of, you, you sort of study, like, for a long time on Roman stuff. You're like, yeah, yeah, Roman stuff. And, or, you know, done, like, prehistory and Iron Age. But then, you know, you watch a TV programme and you've just got no, no knowledge. And then you're just like, oh, sort of like to do that or, you know like, the like Vikings, really Vikings like now like <laughs> and just like oh yeah that, that is pretty interesting yeah. every time I watch a Thor film I always think to myself I yeah. uh, should have stuck down that route in my third year of undergraduate I did a module on the Vikings I did quite well at it actually but then I decided now nah, I'm just going to stick with the Romans mm. well it's worked out right but still sometimes you get those pangs the Tudors as well we had too much Tudors, but is that because you watched the Tudors? Like, the, no, the I, I, ju- I just grew up with my mum. It's one of those mm. periods that my mum's a big fan of. Mm. So when I was younger, we went to places like Hampton Court quite mm. a lot, Hever Castle. Yeah, I guess probably the Tudors and the Romans were two periods, British history, that I was exposed to quite a lot when I was younger. Mm. And as such, I guess I could have gone down more the history route. You could have been the new way. David Starkey. I could have been... <laughs> the more sort of uh, you know sort of nice uh, modern and progressive David Starkey yeah. <laughs> there's a quote from Alan Partridge that about David, David Starkey but I don't I can't actually repeat on the podcast no. <laughs> <laughs> I mean I've never met David Starkey so no um, well it's just quite intense like when he's programmed whenever I've seen him you know, he did one of those programs where he went to a school didn't he to teach really and it was well that would have been an intense I think it was a bit of a disaster yeah, yeah. I can't remember now I don't think it went very well it's just sort of I think he came across quite badly I just <laughs> actually I think I might have seen some of that but um yeah, he just seems to just be striding around cathedrals most of the time. That's what I was saying. He's just sort of like talking about Henry VIII, you know. But did Henry have? <laughs> you know, sort of, yeah. Just, it's just a, the way he goes about it. See, maybe we should be doing it. We should be striding about Roman Canterbury, sort of just uh, monologuing them on the podcast. <laughs> so to go back to the water, you were talking about how some of the approaches that you utilise are born out of the study of prehistory mm. to some extent. Yeah. How did you come about those? I mean, one of the things that's come out talking to other people, like talking to Greg Wall, talking to Andy Gardner, is this idea of talking to people beyond just the sphere that we're in of Roman archaeology slash Roman history yeah. and talking to people particularly in, in areas like prehistory mm. uh, and getting their thoughts on things and understanding those approaches and methodologies. So how did you come to that well obviously my PhD supervisor because I was at Kenby Fourth my undergrad Steve Willis he sort of dips his toe in both sort of sides mm-hmm. of that um, divide so and he really had done some some work on water so that was that got me sort of interested in that perspective and I think he just went away at one point and sort of I think it was a master's student and said you just go read like Richard Bradley and so Richard Bradley likes archaeology in natural places and read that sort of over you know during the summer Maybe it was before I was going into my MA or something, and I think it was quite influential in some of the the ideas. And actually, it's just a very thoughtful scholar, and some of his things. He also wrote a paper about sort of um, making strange, sort of defamiliarizing um, prehistoric monuments. I think it was to try and understand them, and so I sort of took some inspiration from that as well um, in terms of trying to make make water strange or defamiliarize. Roman aqueducts or something like this so I, just, I think prehistory you just dip into those things there's obviously a lot written about well it's sort of more theoretical a lot of the time because you haven't got the or always the evidence there so it sort of dictates you have to have more ideas and it's a little bit more freeform and yeah I think people like Richard Bradley just 
it sort of inspired a lot of writers like that, I suppose, because the more writers are in that sort of arena, that specialism, they attract more people, don't they? So it sort of snowballs, and I just went down that sort of rabbit hole, and well, it was interesting sort of Roman transition, and I think you can't appreciate that unless you've engaged with both sort of traditions there. So, you know, there's other established sort of Roman scholars that are doing that as well, so whether it's Hingley or Crichton, they're sort of both sides of that looking for sort of interactions um, over sort of the chronology from the Iron Age into the Roman period. So it's sort of absorbing those things, um, and I think it's the only way we can really realistically look at that sort of change. You have to you have to think about context, isn't it? Like the basis of archaeology is context. So if, if you just suddenly start a Roman conquest, then yeah, where are you? You are doing archaeology without context, which is uh, foolhardy. Mm. <laughs> context is key. Yeah, context is key. Yeah. So take me back to the beginning. So what what led you down the path of wanting to go to university and do archaeology, and why why did you end up in the world of the Romans as opposed to the Tudors? Yeah. How comes you didn't end up being the next David Starkey? Well, yeah, actually, I was. Um, it wasn't. I don't think I was even down to do sort of classics or archaeology in my first choice. I, I applied for Royal Holloway. I think it was some sort of. It might have had some ancient history in it, but it was more sort of history course. But I didn't do well enough in my A levels, and uh, so my my second choice was Kent. But yeah, actually, it turned out to be it's a great thing. And even when I started at Kent. I was probably more interested in the ancient history side, certainly initially, and then I did a couple of archaeology modules, just because I sort of I was interested in archaeology, I suppose, because we grew up with times and stuff, and I'd been to Italy, um, like family when I was a kid, like seeing the different sides and stuff, so sort of had a bit of an affinity for that as well. So I did it and sort of liked it and did some sort of theoretical modules, I think, as well. And so I just got interested in it and it sort of snowballed. But then how do things carry on? Now, I don't know how I ended up doing a master's. I did quite well in my degree, so then you sort of carry on and then you look for funding. If you get it, you carry on doing the PhD. Um, but I wouldn't say it was It was like um, when I was younger or something, just like, I will be an archaeologist. Or you know, Some people would say I'm not an archaeologist now. <laughs> a writer of archaeology. Um, but yeah, so yeah, I suppose it's, it's one of those things you different circumstances and different things happen and I just always followed what I've been sort of interested in and you know, that's changed over over time but then try to pursue it and, and generally hopefully sort of what I'm good at as well playing to my to my strength so I guess it was that sort of thing that I carried on down that path well you I mean you must have been similar as well so you talked about on the podcast before but um, or if you, were you destined from, from a young age for archaeology? Well, no, you weren't, because you could have been Tudor. Well, I guess, by and large, I would say, from a relatively young age, I think always archaeologist was that really? what it was going to be. Yeah, I think it was, like, early on, but then, although it was sort of mixed with paleontology. There's so many people that say, when they're really young, they want to be an archaeologist. Yeah. It's an idea that a lot of people have when they're in their, yeah. like, they're seven or eight, mm. and then they grow out of it, and the real world comes along. And yeah. I guess I never just like the real world yeah. enough, you could say. I don't know, I just... My earliest memory of wanting to do anything was to be, I think, as so many archaeologists wanted to be, a paleontologist. Yeah, yeah. And then I just realised I just didn't have enough interest mm. in studying geology yeah. and rocks to really become a paleontologist. And I just remember from a really young age 
reading horrible histories. Mm. In fact, actually, if you look at my shelf over there, you can see I've got nearly all of them. Although somebody said to me the other day about the songs from the Horrible Histories TV show, which I've never seen. No, really? Never seen. And now they're making a Rotten Romans film as well. Oh, so really? I feel like I've got to get up to scratch. Mm. The Rotten Romans film is just going to have Derek Jacobi as Claudius again. I've sold. That's, that's sold. Good, isn't it? Yeah. Although is that going to taint Claudius' legacy even more? The, you know, poor old Claudius. Has he been hard done by him? Suetonius <laughs> and, uh, you know. Have you seen I, Claudius with Derek Jacobi? I think many, many years ago. Oh, that's so good. It's really, I mean, it's really good. Derek Jacobi as Claudius is, I think, perfect. Sean Phillips as Livia is great. Mm. It's got a young Patrick Stewart in it, mm-hmm. Sajanus. With, McKellen in there. With her hair. What does he? No, he doesn't have hair. He has a wig on. I'm pretty certain he has a wig on. But the really weird thing about it is, do you know they had play Augustus in it? Mm-hmm. It's Brian Blessed. Mm, I've always thought Blessed would be good Augustus. But was was he more spelt at the time? Like, or... No, he's, oh, he's still... Of course Brian. he was, because Flash Gordon, he's like a... You know, he's a big lad. <laughs> I just... I, I, to me, that's just never how I've seen Augustus. He just plays Augustus as slightly bumbling, very prone to like outbursts of anger. So it's sort of older Augustus, isn't it? Yeah, but it's not. It's still not how I'd ever picture him. But then again, I, I guess the thing with Augustus is it's very difficult to picture him as an older person because he dies when he's in what he's seventies, and obviously mm. none of his images show him older than like thirty at the most. Yeah. So it is difficult. But even still, it's not how I imagine him. I always imagine him much more like the way he's presented in Rome the TV series mm, yeah yeah sort of calculating they, they cast that series so well though I think that everyone's sort of on the money how you, how you sort of perceive them I yeah I wasn't quite a big fan of um, I can't remember his name now Kieran Hines as Caesar oh okay. I think he's good mm. but he's not quite how I imagined Caesar yeah, but him and James Purfoy come as like a, a couple, don't they? Like, yeah. Couple, like they're basically they're in so many things together. So, you know, you've got Mark Anthony there, and so you've got to do that. Apparently, um, James Purfoy, it's Purfoy or Purfoy, I can't remember, but um, yeah, the guy that plays Mark Anthony, <laughs> he got really upset um, when Game of Thrones started, and because a lot of the actors from Rome sort of went, well, Kieran Hines ended up in Game of Thrones and stuff like this, and apparently they offered him a role. But he was so angry because he said the Game of Thrones had taken Rome away from them, like because it was the HBO thing beforehand and they would have got another series. But I mean, he wouldn't have been like, you know, in it, would he? Because he died. Yeah, yeah. So, so what was he complaining about? But um, yeah, apparently that was a big thing because it was sort of like it had the Game of Thrones vibe, I suppose, although it's realistic. Cause it, was it is a bit of a proto Game of Thrones. Yes. Yeah. I think it's. HBO trying out yeah. and seeing how well received a TV show with quite realistic violence, death, mm. sex, etc. would yeah. actually be received by an audience. I've never watched it as well, but the impression I got was that Deadwood was quite similar in that regard. Yeah, I started watching Deadwood. But People say that was fantastic, yeah. and they're going to do a film now, I think. But, yeah. but even still, those series laid the groundwork, I think, for Game of Thrones... Because I think before Game of Thrones, I can't really think of too many series, unless you think of things like maybe soap operas, mm. uh, where main characters just die. Yeah. And, and and the series keeps on going. Obviously, mm. there's those still still those central characters of people like Jon Snow, Daenerys, the, and, and Tyrion, who keep it going. But there are so many other characters around them, like Sean Bean. Like, when you started watching Game of Thrones... Well, he was, like, on all the posters, wasn't he? Because he's, like, the biggest actor in it, so... You wouldn't have thought in a million years that he would. You get to the end of the series and he 
be. Well, uh, I suppose Sean Bean's uh, reputation. Yeah, I guess so. Time. Yeah, if you but yeah, you, you didn't. You didn't. You thought he was going to get out of it somehow, didn't you? Because it's a series, and you think, wow, you're not going to kill off your main star after a, you know, just sort of ten episodes or whatever it was. But yeah. So while you were at Kent, you got to go excavate in Ostia. Did you just one season in Ostia, or was it one season in Ostia? Yeah. What was it like? It's good. Although I was sort of like, uh, yeah, I suppose called in, called in as reinforcements. But it, I mean, it's great. It's great. You like Thor landing at Wakanda? Yeah, I, I'd like to think that I was, I was Thor landing at Wakanda. It's like burst of light yeah. comes down, this trowel yeah. comes flying out. Yeah, I mean, many people would say that it was, uh, it was much akin to that. And when they saw Avengers, they were reminded of uh, me and Ostia and. 2011 or something but um, yeah so oh, it, was, it was good fun it, it's a great site isn't it so the, the weird thing when you're digging somewhere like there is that you've just got just so much stuff that is almost like worthless to you like backfield that would if you found it on a British site would be crazy good you know chunks of like uh, an amphora you know just go oh well you know sort of been dug up and sort of yeah it's just there for you so it is pretty um, it's pretty impressive and I hadn't really, I hadn't been to Ostia before that. I've been to like Pompeii and Herculaneum and stuff. So it was quite nice sort of being on the day-to-day on that site and sort of getting to understand, you know, when it was in its heyday or whatever, what sort of stuff we've got left there, the late antique side of it. Um, yeah, it was just a sort of a nice few days. And I, I suppose I didn't have lots of um, things that I was in charge of either. So it's always quite comfortable being a dog's body like in that situation so but yeah it was good fun the dog Travita eh? yeah yeah <laughs> yeah I mean there was a lot of pizza um, there was a lot of wine and then there was a lot of you know archaeology as well so it's not to luck about that it's the dream it is it's the dream <laughs> living the life in the sun as well yeah. although that's the problem digging somewhere like that it's... yeah but it was like sort of late season so it was I think it was about September, September, October, maybe like late September. So it was, it was relatively sort of chilly in the mornings, but then it would get to a sort of nice, comfortable temperature. So, yeah, it was good. It's not to light, like I say. Nice. Did you actually find anything interesting? Anything stand out in the memory? I mean, there wasn't like any like super super binds. Because I think the thing was that a lot of it had been sort of excavated before, like the sort of Mussolini excavations and stuff, so it was all a little bit mixed up and everything. Well, I think, I've, I mean, the funniest find was just finding like sort of like a lira quite deep down or something. You know, <laughs> you know, it was quite an old lira. And I was digging it, I was digging, um, and sort of some tourists were watching me, and so I was like sort of digging away, and then you could see this like coin, really good like coin. Just like really clear to come up, and they're like, ah, oh, my God. you know, it's just holding up. I'm sorry, it's just a, <laughs> <just> a lira. <laughs> so over your time now in archaeology, because I was thinking about this the other day, I'm like, man, from when I started undergraduate, it's been like what we're on about 13 years now. Mm. Um, so you're, do you go straight from school to? Yeah. So you're a year ahead of me. So you're in any case, you're around the similar sort of yeah. period. Like, has it changed? What's it been like over those years? Have you noticed any transformations in in the world of archaeology, or is it still too soon to? Yeah. Is it well, the sort of thing that could have born more out of hindsight? Yeah, I mean, because you're not really engaged with the sort of wider world. I think when you're an undergrad, are you? So you're sort of just, um, you know, I mean, you hear what your lecturers are saying or, or something like this. So I couldn't say that sort of. It's been huge revolution changes. I, I think that maybe Roman archaeology is taking on board some other influences to 
sort of with its theoretical approach now. I think that's happening. Uh, and maybe archaeology in general, because it is like there's so many sort of current issues at the moment that, that you know, other disciplines are sort of dealing with within the wider humanities that maybe archaeology is sort of taking those things on board. The other thing, the technology side, I suppose, is really taking off, whether it's sort of 3D scanning or, you know, GIS and stuff like that. Everything's got more advanced in that way. So I think that sort of side is probably branching off on its own. Specialisms, you know, and all the digital humanities sort of stuff has emerged. Um, but, you know, you have to be a specialist for that, don't you? So, yeah. So. <laughs> I don't know. I, I guess if someone who's going to ask me over the last kind of like decade or so, probably the big thing I've just... I, th- I think that's happened and maybe, I, maybe I'm just wrong about this but the big thing that seems to me that happens is I think we're almost that kind of track generation starting to come to fruition even more I think well I guess actually let, we're kind of like the second generation we're like we're like the Picard to like uh, Andy Gardner's <laughs> Kirk or whatever you know like <laughs> there's, there's that kind of sense of more and more as you were saying the, the kind of theoretical frameworks are becoming really big and then I suppose because the guys that have run track in the main now for the last yeah. however many years have been guys that were from from our kind of generation as well. I guess we've kind of been, I don't want to say raised, educated, <laughs> raised, that would be really what I'm saying, in that kind of milieu of increasingly theoretical frameworks. And I think that stuff's like really becoming borne out now. In in the work, I think it's I think it's having a real big impact. You're just still mulling over the idea of us being the next generation. Well, no, I was just I was just thinking that I'm probably one of those disposable like away team <laughs> sort of characters, like the sort of classic red shirt sort of. I uh, think that that's what I am on that crew. But maybe eventually we'll we'll go up the ranks somehow, like get some sort of blue shirts. <laughs> maybe you're like the Mars O'Brien, where you're like <laughs> oh what transfer series, like yeah, transfer else, series, like... and then. Uh, <laughs> Become become a cast regular. Well, yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, he was a regular, but you know, more more of a. He was more stuff. of a regular in DS Nine. He was like, it's full on, wasn't he? DS Nine is underrated as well. DS Nine is a cracking show. Yeah, a really yeah. good show. But yeah, no, I'm a, I'm disposable. I'm not I'm not at O'Brien level yet. And um, we'll see if I ever achieve that. <laughs> <laughs> All the characters down to me in the Star Trek universe. O'Brien, uh, O'Brien like, you know, level. I quite, I quite like to be Bashir because yeah, he's quite suave, you know, like uh, he's sort of quite good. But yeah, I'm, I'm not there yet. Maybe you are. Maybe you're sort of like you're right, <laughs> maybe you're sort of like an Odo character, sort of, character. shifting into your sort of like, post. You know. <laughs> they might put you back in the bucket at some point. <laughs> 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 and here's me thinking I was a Riker. Yeah, well, you know, you know, you'd have got on that seat in a different way if you were a Riker. You'd have gone on from the back, like you know. Do you see that clip? Like he always just like got into the ready room and sort of he's put his leg over the back of the chair because they were so small. So yeah, it's a whole compilation on YouTube. Oh, you see, why have I seen that? But you know, <laughs> procrastination of, of sorts. But um, there's, there's there's too much internet now. There's too much internet. Yeah, that that is a problem. That is a problem. Too much TV, too much in there. Too much TV. That's David's refrain, listeners, whenever you meet him, that he'll say, Oh, well, I watched one episode of, uh, of this show. And it's like, but I haven't watched any of that. It's too much TV. It's too much TV. Have you, you haven't listened to the Andy Gardner episode? No. no. We talked about that. We, we talked about that, and I actually said there's too much TV, and Andy repeats what I say, and it actually goes backwards and forwards a couple of times. Yeah. We both go, there's too much TV. It's just too much TV. <laughs> That's going to be one of the themes of the show. <laughs> <laughs> That's going to be my, my spin-off podcast. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> too, too much TV. Too much TV. <laughs> it's my, 
where I discuss the episode of a show that I've watched and I just say at the end of it, I'm not going to watch it anymore, there's too much TV. <laughs> I just watch the first couple of episodes of everything and then move on to something else. And there is, I, I started watching New Daredevil, yeah. stopped watching that after about four episodes. Was that, you still didn't even finish Punisher. Better, yeah, Punisher. Yeah. Better Call Saul, I'm still about halfway through the new, new series of that. Brooklyn Nine-Nine, still need yeah. to go back to... Always Sunny in Philadelphia. Yeah. Skip to the second series of that to get to when Danny DeVito turns up. Yeah. Watch a few episodes. Still need to get back to that. I mean, that's very, very good. So you should you should commit to that. But at the moment, I've only got like Amazon, so um, so I haven't got any of the Netflix shows available. So I've just been filtering down into that sort of like well, basically just binge watching Vikings for like every night. So, but yeah, like you've got to do that because otherwise it's like. Come from everywhere. There's so, there's so much TV. There's too much TV. <laughs> well, that was something I was going to say because you've also got the article coming out in the Track Journal, right? No, I got it in the um, the forthcoming book, the Track Volumes, not the Journal. So, oh, okay. It's in one of those. I was going to do the Journal article, but time issues were too much in the end. Um, yeah, because I had to finish the other one, the post-humanism volume that the track themes series have got coming out and actually that that's actually been talking about like what we were doing at the start of the show I guess um, you know uh, themes of entanglement and agency of water and stuff like that but yeah I had a, a recent article came out in another volume as well that I did with some of the architecture department up at UKC a book called River Irons Rivers and Architecture sort of multidisciplinary approaches to how sort of rivers interact with sort of the built world so that's that's how it came out like in November or something. So go and buy a copy. <laughs> <laughs> is it affordable or is it like my book quotes? Uh, if you get the um, the Kindle one of that, then it's about £30 or something. Oh, right. That's that's really yeah. cool. That's cool. So um, it's cool. I think I've got it in my bag, actually. But um, yeah, it's quite a good, uh, sort of quite a good volume. I haven't like, read it through all the papers yet. I'm not going to read mine. <laughs> I feel like you know, I've read it too many times already. But... <laughs> Yeah. What other what other chapters are in that book? Do you know off the top of your head? Are you what the the River Rhine book? Yeah, or yeah. The, or the or the one that was the well, particularly the affordable one. The affordable <laughs> one. Let's. I'll, I'll get it out and see. We'll be right back after this short break. Oh wow! A view of the Thames as well. Very nice. <laughs> so it's like a. a yeah, nice new book. There's a broad array of different sort of articles in there, so it's got an interesting book actually. Waterloo Sunrise. Ah, you There's always got me one in there. There's always got me one. Is it all based in Britain or is it? Oh no, it's it's all over the place. Yeah, yeah. It was the basis of like a conference that happened in Kent a few years back now. Actually, it's taken a while to sort of get into publication, but um, yeah, it was um, sort of multidisciplinary approaches, like I say. So. Produced something quite a sort of good book. Building Rivers, how the aqueducts of Rome and Britain further connections between towns and their riverine settings. Nice. You got any good images in here at all? Not really. <laughs> there's um, some ones like. Yeah. Some impressive aqueducts in here. Yeah. There's um, And then also the viaduct. Let's see. In Northamptonshire. Sure, right. represent, Imperial, have you? Imperial legacy, essentially, you know, so. The viaducts of the Victorian age, very similar to the sort of aqueducts. London and the Walbrook as well. Mm. It's interesting sites. Interesting <laughs> yeah, I mean that central zone where the Mithraeum um, is established is is 
quite interesting place that I think probably had a lot of meaning going back sort of earlier history of sort of Roman London to do with the water because you've got the sort of crossing points of the Walbrook you've got possible deposits there and stuff I mean there's lots of different interpretations because you get a sort of lot of rubbish deposit as well but yeah I think it's an interesting area and you get quite a few temples there in addition to the mm. um, Temple of Mithras and yeah but yeah so lovely fresh new book fresh new <laughs> Play out that sound book. Yeah, the sound of a, a new volume. <laughs> I've got another question to ask you. Yeah. What would happen if Matthew McConaughey was working on an archaeological site and he found a dragon's tooth? <laughs> Can't do this to me. <laughs> I'm not putting this out out there, but you know, I think that what you what you, what would happen is probably be very similar to. That amazing scene in Reign of Fire. That, Are you not um, going to do your McConaughey impression? I'm not. Can't do the McConaughey impression on air. Like it's just. Uh, Is the pressure too much? Well, I just don't think he's good enough, uh, and I don't really want it to go down in, in sort of uh, indelible record on a podcast. But um, yeah, well, you should just watch Reign of Fire and and see this scene when he is talking to Christian Bale about hunting dragons and it is I think that was the start of Matthew McConaughey's career turnaround actually I love the way that you you have that kind of point in his career that you set down as the turning point of his trajectory into has he got an Oscar now? yeah yeah he got an Oscar so and I think that is the beginning of the McConaughey the McConaughey yeah it just it just happened there it's like yeah not a great film but it's just a just too powerful, really. Uh, he really goes full McConaughey as well. I think he probably had lived a lot. Of, you know, talking about the wheat fields of Kentucky and blah blah. <laughs> I'm I say you're, you're itching to do it. You're oh, getting. Yeah, into, I, I can see you like. It would just be too. Um, no, I can't. I can't go down on record as doing the McConaughey thing. But if anyone meets me in person, you're not recording, then I probably will do it if I've had enough beers. But. Do you think you? Do you think you can claim to have recognised his talent before most others did? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I knew that he was destined for great things. That at that time, I think he was only doing rom coms and stuff. And just he was just paying the paying the bills, just buying his time, and then you know, got to play Van Zandt, the uh, <laughs> American soldier killing dragons, and at a certain point, you know, I don't think many people now have even heard of that film. Well, now they have, and now they have. And, you know, <laughs> please, listeners, go out and watch Rain of Fire because not only has it got Matthew McConaughey turning point of his career it's also got Christian Bale in in a supporting role being like really cockney so really full on sort of, well maybe not cockney but sort of I don't know he's sort of in, really Englishing it up whereas you know a lot of the time he seems to have some sort of generic American accent going on even in real life and then he's got Gerald Butler in as well I mean Gerald Butler just before 300 and all this stuff just in a sort of subsidiary role and just a, as a throwback as a callback Dr Bashir He's oh really? Yeah, well, the actor that plays Doctor Bashir, <laughs> not just Doctor Bashir. He's, he's known as Doctor Bashir, to me, like. <laughs> so you know. Um, but he was also in Game of Thrones as well. Briefly. Oh yeah, he was, wasn't he? The, the the Prince of Dawn, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah. He does up in a lot of things. Alexander Siddig. Mm. He played Hannibal as well, didn't he? In the TV series. He did he? Did yeah. Nice. And he was in Kingdom Heaven as well. Probably yeah. Did you watch Kingdom Heaven? No, I don't think I've ever seen Kingdom Heaven. Pretty good. The extended edition. It's too many films. Too many films. Too many, too many films. Too many films. <laughs> it's all of the stones. So like, uh, is it? Yeah. Same. Or Ridley Scott. Ridley Scott. Yeah. yeah. Oliver Stone. Oh, really? Having great like full metal jackets sort of uh, with all Orlando bling. <laughs> 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 Ridley Scott's a bit helpless though. 
Yeah, yeah, no, it is, yeah. But uh, and to be to be fair, the theatrical release is a little bit, but the extended was quite good. I, I, I quite liked it. Just it's a historical thing. It's just yeah, just think it had some good moments in it. It got Liam Neeson as well. Before we started doing Taken, and Taken One, Taken Two, Taken Three, Taken Four, <laughs> Taken the series, <laughs> a lot of people have been taken. He got back. Oh, I said he came back. He's got a particular set of skills, you see, David. That's the thing. I mean, I said before that he was a character actor, but now he's just like an action hero. But... Do you reckon that change came when he was in Star Wars Episode One? Well, I mean, it was a very good role. I mean, there's there's Darth Maul and Qui Gon are the best things about Episode One, aren't they? You know? I already make enough Star Wars references as it is. So. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, I think that's part of the course. At least he's relevant again now. Yeah. If you were making yeah. those references and it was just like off the original films or like the three prequels or something, then you really would be behind the times because a lot of our students now, what were they, barely, barely born or the sort of undergrads? Yeah, most of them so. would have been born after Gladiator came out, I think now. Yeah, post, we're living in a post Gladiator teaching. The, the PG world. Yeah. Well, exactly. I mean, I think I, I, I still use Gladiators because I still think it's like people who've gone and watched it, a lot of them. But quite a few hadn't even watched sort of 300 as well because I was getting on a bit as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, there you go. So, you know, how else can you learn about hoplite warfare? Oh, won't well, it through, through actually factually <laughs> correct things? But <laughs> <laughs> I guess most people now wouldn't have seen Spartacus as well or most of those. What, the series or like the... Uh, the original sort of... Yeah. Uh, to be honest, I didn't even see it until I did my Masters. No. My first Masters seminar, we actually had to go away and we were assigned in pairs a film to watch. We had to come back and talk about it. Like, mm. they represented the Roman world. Uh, we got Spartacus. That was, that was a long, long, long afternoon spent yeah. in one of the seminar rooms in Leicester watching Spartacus. Yeah, some of those old ones. There, there was a sort of... That was the heyday, wasn't it, of the sort of ancient world films of that sort of era. Then I suppose we had Gladiator and 300 and stuff, but tried to sort of make a little bit of a comeback. But it's been more fantasy stuff, really, hasn't it, than, than sort of historical. Although we're going to get that Gladiator too, apparently. Oh, well, that is ridiculous. Uh, just like, because it had already gone away from the timeline, so it's just completely made. What are they going to do? The year of the, well, what was it? The, it's you know, the year of the five emperors. The year of the five emperors, yeah. So, well, they could, I guess they could do that, but it's not that compelling, is it? Sort of, yeah, I don't know. Maybe just do Rise of the Severins. Rise of the Severins. Revenge of the Severins. Yeah, Revenge there of the Severins, go. yeah. Cracked yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> just, yeah, I don't know. Elagabalus, just just a crazy movie. That would be. That would be X-rated. <laughs> but I still think the Buster Caracalla is, is perhaps the most... Oh, Caracalla looks like a badass. Yeah, movie. it's so surly, isn't it? Like, just... Uh, He's got that slight, like, looking over his neck. Not, like, straight on, but looking over his neck. I think he's almost doing a people's eyebrow as well, isn't he? It's <laughs> sort of like, just, he's definitely rocking that. He's got that look. Yeah, I mean, he's one of the more... You won't want to mess with him. But some of those um, third century ones are pretty pretty hardcore as well. Yeah. Well, they're a bit like... Sometimes they're a bit... It certainly shows them in more realistic ways, don't they, in the third century, before they sort of switch to, um, again, back to sort of Tetrarch slash Constantine looks. Um, but yeah, they're sort of, I don't know, if they're fat, then they're depicted as fat. I think Balbinus or something, it's just like an absolute unit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, Maximinus Thrax, he comes straight after the Severans. Yeah. 
It's, that's quite interesting because I think some people think that he suffered from something like giganticism. Uh, so basically, in my mind, I've just had this image of Andre the Giant as yeah, a, as a yeah. Roman emperor, which yeah. is an incredible image. Yeah. Like that would be <laughs> that would be just that would just be that would make a that would make a good gladiator sequel. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I mean, you could do it third century, but you wouldn't have like a very good storyline, would you? Well, you do just a, Game of Thrones essentially. Yeah, they yeah. just die every like every <laughs> five minutes. <laughs> I thought you do a Relian. I feel, I'm surprised that they haven't done like a film about Aurelian because it's like there was a rumour a while ago that Mark Wahlberg was going to do like a Julius Caesar film and I no. cannot imagine Mark Wahlberg as Julius Caesar no I mean it's not he hasn't he hasn't even really got a nose has he we have to have a prosthetic or something because <laughs> he's obviously got quite a stub nose like Mark Wahlberg hasn't he he hasn't got the look well I think we realised after uh, Colin Farrell did Alexander the Great oh, you don't about necessarily me? Yeah, need that's a masterpiece <laughs> <laughs> Colin Farrell here yeah, as Alexander. Well, isn't Jared Leto like he's? Um, I've never actually seen it. Oh, Jared, Le- Jared Leto, Jared Leto. Um, I love just, the way you have you ever seen Robin Lane Fox? He's a Cambridge academic. Hmm. He's written like a number of books about the ancient world. He did a quite notable, notable book on pagans and Christians, but hmm. <coughs> he did a biography of Alexander the Great and now if you see most copies of it it's got Colin Farrell on the front because it? it came oh, out around the time the film came out man. so obviously the publisher was like to sell it because they're a number of the books he writes are very academic but they're mm. tailored for a wider audience yeah. I think a lot of them are published by people like Penguin and clearly somebody thought um, to to sell the volume the best thing to do was tie it into the movie so put Colin Farrell on the front Imagine being, imagine though, imagine being like a Cambridge professor of ancient yeah. history and being like, I'm going to publish this biography of Alexander the Great. And they're like, we put Colin Farrell on the front. Wow. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty, that's pretty bad, isn't it? I mean, I suppose it would be better if it had been a great movie. It's like if you'd have done what about. Does he actually, what does he do with his accent in it? Well, it's like Irish. It's just they're, Irish. They're all, they're, they've all got sort of Irish accents, if I, if I recall. And I suppose the point was, it's like the Macedonians are sort of different from the Greeks because they're sort of from that different sort of Balkan type region aren't they so and they were seen as different so I sp- suppose that must have been the underlying logic that we don't do a sort of like Greek English accent uh, we do something a little bit different but it just comes across as a bit strange well especially because then you've got Americans sort of doing Irish accents as well so yeah it wasn't good did it sound like Christopher Lambert Highland? <laughs> I mean yeah, that is uh, a whole new level isn't it you know I mean as we've talked about many times that Christopher Lambert playing a Scotsman, but then Sean, but Sean Connery playing a Spaniard, uh, Ramirez. You know, it's... apparently Christopher Lambert prior to filming Highlander barely spoke English. Yeah. So when he actually says stuff in the film, he's literally just read it from a script. He yeah. doesn't actually really know what it even means a lot of the time. So he actually did quite point. a good acting job, probably. Yeah, yeah. Um, still, it still kind of holds up. Still kind of holds up. Well, it doesn't, but um, oh, well, but his, his acting that's job. That's a dagger to my his, heart. No, his, his acting job, I think, possibly holds up, but the film itself is it's pretty. And the premise is really good, but uh, the special effects are well, not special. Uh, yeah, it's pretty. I think when you work back and look at it. Pretty bad. But it's got a full Queen soundtrack again as well, hasn't it? Yeah, yeah. There was the video that Queen did where it's Freddie Mercury with his the microphone. You know where he used to hold the microphone, mm. but he had like the part of the microphone yeah. stand as well. I think he's fighting against Christopher Lambert in a mock uh, sword fight. Yeah, well, yeah. Um, Classic. Always thought though, 
perfect film for a remake now. Yeah, it is. Yeah, we've talked about remake. a few times. It's just got it's got the premise. It, I mean, even like a Netflix series or something, you could you could definitely justify it. Um, James McAvoy. James McAvoy. I suppose yeah. Connor McLeod. Oh, You'd well, have yeah. Bender. Fassbender. Really? Yeah. Yeah, but James McAvoy is actually Scottish. Yeah, I know, but Fassbender could pull it off. I mean, he's played an English man pretending to be a German as well, and, <laughs> you know, and all sorts. He's played Ian McKellen. You know? <laughs> Javier Bardem as Ramirez. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then as the Kirk, I don't know, you can have someone like Dave Bautista or something like that. Just got to have just someone that's really imposing. But the guy that played the Kirk actually just in so many things yeah, over the years, yeah. isn't he? He's just one of those classic. Clancy sort of, Brown. Yeah, yeah. Where, what are we talking about? I don't know, we've really spiralled off into like films now. Let's, put, let's bring it back. Well I, well, I think at that point we'll probably, we probably can start wrapping up, actually. Just wrapping up. We've had a very productive conversation. We've, we've gone through lots of different subjects. There's, there's been various asides to geekery and sort of Marvel, Marvel things. Um, but we talked a bit about archaeology, didn't we, I think? So, the book's coming out next year. So yeah, books come out this year. Chapter in Chapter in, in River Eye, Architecture in Rivers, so go look at that on Amazon now, so get it on your Kindle. Lovely Christmas present for someone maybe. Sell, sell, sell. Yeah, and then hopefully um next year um another chapter talking about in a post in a volume about post humanism. So that should be good now. So yeah. Brilliant. And if anything else, go away and watch Rain of Fire. Go watch Rain of Fire. Matthew McConaughey. I mean, even if you just watch the bit with Matthew McConaughey there, where he's holding a dragon's tooth up, it's just worth it for that. Okay, it's worth buying it for that. It's probably only cheap now. If I ever get you for like Secret Santa or something one year, I'm going to buy you a picture of Matthew McConaughey in that moment, <laughs> describing the dragon's tooth you can put on your wall. Yeah, I mean, you could make a T-shirt of that. That'd be uh, fairly good. Might have to do that actually myself. That is a great note to end on. (laughs) (laughs) Right, thank you very much. Thanks for listening to Coffee and Circuses. The Roman poet Juvenal once said, people will be content as long as you give them bread and circuses. But if I'm going to talk to somebody, I'd rather do it over coffee than bread. You can find me, David Walsh, on Twitter at D underscore J underscore Walsh or contact me about the show at coffeeandcircuses at gmail.com. That's with a full and. Don't forget, you can subscribe, rate and review the show on iTunes and Spotify. Big thank you to the Institute of Classical Studies who support the podcast via one of their public engagement grants. The theme tune is La Cajora by Roll Music, available for download at freemusicarchive.org and in the background right now you can hear an 8-bit version of the Indiana Jones theme by Miles Metal, originally by John Williams, but you all know that, which is available on YouTube. Thanks again for listening and remember, it's better to be a gladiator than a Diocletian. <laughs>